morning, everybody. Happy Memorial Day weekend. I hope you guys have uh, plans and things fun to do, or fun things to do, whichever direction I want to speak today. Uh, this morning, we're going to talk about hearing from God. How many of you uh, hope to hear from God in your life? How many hope to hear Him clearly when you do hear from Him? <laughs> How many of you have not heard Him clearly? In your life, yes, yes, many times, many times. So, um, and we're going to do that in the context of Genesis 25, so you can go ahead and get your Bibles ready to be there. But understanding and interpreting the messages that God has for us is, is quite honestly a profound endeavor. Uh, it's one that has puzzled and has challenged uh, believers uh, throughout history, whether we're... Whether we're um, uh, sincere believers, whether we're, you know, faithful believers or whether we're people that kind of take things, uh, uh, you know, the way, we're, way our culture takes them, which is just church attendance and moving on through those kinds of things. Um, it's puzzled us and we need to work through that. The Bible does provide numerous accounts of God speaking directly to people. Uh, it's discerning and comprehending what God has said that's not always a straightforward task. And so the complexity uh, that arises, I believe, inherent to all of what we're talking about is actually that we are finite beings trying to understand the infinite, or rather that we are um, limited human beings trying to understand the divine. And if, and if you don't know that difference or don't understand that there is a difference there, uh, it's going to continue to be a challenge to try to get things right. In the biblical narratives, God's uh, communications vary in form and manner. I think we all know this, right, when we're reading through things. Sometimes God speaks audibly. How many of you want that? You also know that when God speaks audibly at times, people panic. So maybe you don't want that. I'm just, I'm just throwing that out there, right? But sometimes God speaks audibly. Uh, for example, he addresses Adam and Eve in the garden, and he speaks to them. He walks with them, and he speaks with them. Uh, with Moses, he he speaks to Moses. It's just uh, a really odd situation. At one point, he decides to choose uh, a burning bush to do it. <laughs> and that, to me, has always been uh, hilarious because I have no idea where that comes from. I think God is just randomly creative, and he's like, watch this one, right? So he's talking through bushes. Um, God speaks to Noah, and he instructs Noah audibly. He, he instructs Noah one-on-one -on -one to build an ark to escape a coming flood. Um, there's got to be some confusion there, right? Noah's like, um, what's a boat? Right? I, don't, I don't know. It's just, there's some interesting things with that one, but God speaks to him, right? God spoke to Abraham. We've spoke to Abraham on multiple occasions, including uh, when he calls him to leave his homeland uh, in Genesis 12 and when he promises to give him a son in Genesis 17. God speaks to Elijah uh, in a still small voice. God speaks to the prophet Isaiah, commissioning him to be a, a messenger to the people of Israel. He speaks to Jeremiah, appoints him as a prophet to the nations. God speaks to the prophet Ezekiel in a vision, calling him a watchman over Israel. Over and over and over, we have, we have story after story of God speaking audibly to people. God spoke uh, through uh, to the people in the New Testament through his son, through Jesus, so God is speaking 
to the people of the New Testament era. Um, and it's, it's awesome because Jesus is referred to as the word of God himself. So Jesus' very action is a communication from God. And I think that's beautiful. God spoke to the Apostle Paul on multiple occasions, including that fascinating Damascus Road experience where he strikes him blind. So if you still want to hear from God, just, just know burning bushes and striking you blind are within the realm of possibilities. Okay, so, so that's possible. Uh, on other occasions, though, God communicates through dreams and he communicates through visions. Um, sometimes, uh, sometimes he does this through inner promptings. And I think that that can be a fascinating concept. Like, what, what does it mean to, uh, to sense that God is speaking to you? Right? I just needed to see you, Brittany. Sorry. Anyway, so, right? So, like, so, so it, you're not in trouble. Anyway, so, but, it, like, what, what does it mean that God is going to prompt us? Uh, through dreams and visions, God uh, talks to Daniel about future events and affords him the ability to interpret dreams. Uh, I know that many of you have had some funny dreams. If I was interpreting dreams, I would have something fascinating to do every morning at the breakfast table with Sam alone, right? You know, she's, she's got the strangest stuff, right? I, I don't know what it is. Maybe you parents of older kids can talk to me about this, but we've entered this phase where uh, daddy dies in about six out of seven dreams, and I have no idea what's... I'm like... Are you guys just afraid of this or dang? You know, anyway, so anyway, I'm looking for, I'm looking for some interpretation there, right? Uh, on other occasions, God communicates, uh, God communicates through, these, through these urges, or these unctions, as we might say. God employs diverse means to convey his messages, right? Uh, but that just makes the process of interpretation that much more complicated, doesn't it? Hey, did I hear God? No. Was there a burning bush? No. Did I feel something? Yeah. Was it God? Was it pizza? Right? Like, you, we're, we're asking those questions, I think, constantly. So, so the challenge in interpreting God's word lies not only in deciphering the medium through which God is going to speak, but also in grasping depth and complexity and, and, and all the things that he does. God communicates through a profound symbolism, metaphorical language. I love this. This is hard for people to process that are maybe literalists of the Bible. But God also speaks in contextual nuance, which means God talks to the people back then that he was talking to, and he doesn't care if you understand it. And that's fascinating to me because he's like, oh, so you don't know anything about the ancient Near East? not going to explain it either. We're moving on, right? So, so like God does some strange things, right? All of this requires careful analysis. It requires us to do what the very scripture itself tells us to do, which is to rightly divide it. And in order to rightly divide God's word, I think we must commit to being students of his word. We must commit to being students. You cannot hope to plumb the depths of God if you are not willing to seek this is why he says, seek and you will find. He doesn't say, mail it in and I'll just give you the answers anyway, right? But, but that seems to be like the modern Christian perspective. So uh, we could take the prophetic visions of Ezekiel and Daniel, which are all filled with this kind of crazy imagery, all of which represent things in the future for them at least. Uh, decoding the meaning of those visions uh, demands that we keep understanding of history, of culture, and of theology. 
We have to understand God well. Additionally, God's messages are not always explicit or straightforward, which kind of bites the big one too, right? His instructions are veiled at times, requiring each one of us to seek further clarification and discernment. And sometimes that discernment is, and this is hard again for some people, sometimes that discernment is you have to ask other people. And when you ask those other people, you have to run through this filter of, can I trust that other person? Or what makes them get it right? And so on and so forth. So it just continues to be more and more complicated. In the case of Samuel, for instance, it took him a few attempts to realize that it was actually God speaking to him, right? In the Old Testament, Samuel's like, who is this? Who is this? And in the end, he needed the guidance of Eli to actually comprehend the source of the voice of God. So maybe you need an Eli. Maybe you need somebody that will help you discern. Furthermore, human fallibility and biases can cloud our interpretation of any divine message. And this is the trick, right? Biases are a huge issue. And, and I just want everybody to raise their hand. I'm not asking the question first. Raise your hand. Raise it. Bill, raise it. <laughs> I am biased. Thank you, because you are whether you think you are or not. And if you deny it, you're that much more deluded in your bias, right? Personal desires, preconceived notions, cultural conditioning, all of these influence how individuals perceive and understand God's word. All of it. It's affecting every one of us at all times. Even sincere believers, again, may interpret the same passage differently due to these features, these factors, right? Unique perspectives or unique experiences. And we're going to look at an example of that in the New Testament today that parallels our story. So recognizing the complexity of interpreting God's word, uh, messages should, uh, realizing the complexity of this should humble us. It should inspire a spirit of openness. It should inspire a spirit of humility. It should inspire us to be constantly seeking after God's wisdom. Um, it's diligent study, it's prayerful reflection, it's reliance and guidance, hear me clearly church, reliance and guidance of the Holy Spirit not to be confused with your personal opinion. That's hard. It's so funny how many times I talk to people and they're like, I know it was the Spirit of God. And I'm like, it's funny, the Spirit of God always agrees with you. There's a problem here. There's a problem here. By approaching God's communication with reverence, with patience, with a willingness to grow in faith, I think we can actually navigate the, compl the complicated uh, journey of interpreting God or hearing him and knowing what he's talking about. So today, we're going to actually grow in this ability uh, to interpret God's word. So in Genesis 25, we're going to focus on verses 19 through 34. And the passage today focuses on the account of Isaac and Rebekah, their struggle with infertility, uh, the birth of twin sons, Jacob and Esau, which you guys all know. And the passage also describes the significant event where Esau, the, the older or the firstborn officially, uh, sells his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of stew. Now that is a, a, an idea that needs to be uh, rightly interpreted. You have a guy who sells his birthright. That's not to be conf confused with what later happens, which is Jacob uh, stealing the blessing of his father by deceiving his father. And none of those are to be confused as salvation. 
And so these are really complicated matters. The passage begins by stating that Isaac and Rebekah, after being married for 20 years, were still childless. And so Isaac prays to the Lord, and it says this phrase, it says, on behalf of his wife, which I'll talk about in just a second, and she conceives. So in verse uh, 19, here's where we start. Now these are the records of the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. Big, long, convoluted, he took Rebekah. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren, and the Lord answered him. That's the key thing, right? The Lord is answering in this moment, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Now, in verse 26, that's what shows us the actual time frame of the events that we're dealing with. So in verse 26, it says, Afterwards, afterward, his brother, that is uh, Jacob, came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. Now, I know math is a frustrating thing, but 60 Minus 40 is 20. Okay, so there we go. So we got 20 years, right? 20 years of time that has happened. Now, I want you to think of that in its context and realize that if you've gone 20 years being married and you haven't had any kids, do you think you're going to seek God for kids? Do you think you're going to pray? Did you say no? Oh, I thought somebody was like, no, they're like, we made it 20 years, forget this. <laughs> anyway, I was, I was, anyway, whatever. So 20 years, you're going, you're running to God. You're saying, what's going on? But this phrase is fascinating because it literally records an account and no more, okay? It records an account. It says that Isaac prays on behalf of Rebekah. Why does it say that? Well, you can generate all kinds of meaning if you want to. Well, men are the priests in the family, and they've got to do the praying. You realize the problem with that, right? Obviously, God doesn't listen to women then. This is absurd, right? This is just an account. This is just an account, right? So what happened? The guy prays for his wife. That's what all you guys should do, in just, just in case you were wondering, right? And so anyway, so we've got this situation. Praise. Isaac and Rebecca had been waiting 20 years for this moment, most likely 20 years worth of praying and pleading to God. Isaac prays to the Lord on behalf of Rebecca, and what? God responds. That's the important thing that you need to remember. God responds. But how is he responding, Right? How is he responding? He responds simply through affording Rebecca the ability to conceive. No words at all. At least no words that are recorded. So God is answering people by just doing. Sometimes, and I believe most often, this is how God responds. I believe most of the time this is what God does. I think we pray and we ask God, and God does something. And here's the problem with that. Not that God is flawed in doing it. The problem is God answers the prayer, and then we go, why doesn't God ever talk to me? Why doesn't God ever communicate with me? And I just want to look at myself in the mirror and everybody here and go, he's talking all the time. He's just doing stuff. How many of you have had answered prayers in your life? God talked to you, just so you know. He did he did, and I love that. I love that from my faith, 
because there are many times when we struggle and we feel very distant from God, right? But God's going, I did that, and I did that, and I did that. I'm shouting to you, Nathan. He's moving, and it's an amazing thing, right? So how does God respond? He simply affords the ability to to conceive. And this is the way God answers. But, But remember, it is still a response. So next, during her pregnancy, Rebecca experiences a struggle within her womb. This is a really weird situation because interpreters get this uh, confusing because they're trying to generate meaning and they're trying to put things in, but it doesn't always answer the questions. So she inquires of the Lord who reveals to her something weird. Let's just say it that way. It's quite obscure. Rebecca is carrying in her womb two nations. I'm really glad God's not literal all the time. <laughs> That's, ooh. Anyway, okay, so she's two nations, and yet he's literal. Isn't it amazing, right? Two nations, and the younger would surpass the older. But how does God reveal this? Just let's track with Rebecca's question and God's response. And in this case, God actually responds as per Moses, right? Moses is the one writing all of this. So it says, but the children struggled together within her. Now, if you don't have this highlighted in your Bible, you need to highlight it in your Bible. Because that phrase there, they struggled within her, matters to what it is we're about to read. So the children struggled together within her, and she said, now, this is fascinating to me. If it is so, why then am I this way? Okay, time out. If what is so, and why is what what way? Have you ever stopped and just asked the questions of the text and gone, that doesn't make any sense. What are they saying? What are you actually saying? It doesn't make any sense, does it? Now, you can put things together in your brain, and I'm glad you do, but watch. It's, it's deeper than what you might think. So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, okay, Rebecca, it is so, and you are this way, Because two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body, and one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. End of God's statement. And then look at the editorial comment given by Moses, because he knows the whole story. When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, poof, there were twins in her womb. Okay, just... We've got to think about this. If it is so, if what is so, why then am I this way? What way are you? All we heard before was that there were two struggling within her. But she doesn't know that, right? So why is this this way? And the answer isn't, you're going to have twins, right? The answer is, two nations are in your womb, blah, 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 right? So let's just take, take some time with this. Isaac and Rebecca don't have access to sonograms. How many of you have ever had a sonogram? Like, no men, raise your hand. Anyway, okay. So how many of you had a, I have, actually, for a kidney stone. That's right. Anyway, so anyway, so sonograms, right? So we've, that was, there was no gender, right? It was just a kidney stone. Anyway, okay, so, okay, so sonograms, no sonograms. No particular family history that we see recorded of twins, Not that that's not true, it's just that we don't have it in the Bible. 
no security, bigger point, no security in childbearing in this age. What do I mean by that? I mean that a lot of times moms died in childbearing. Do you know this? Like, it wasn't till the 19th century that we changed this story in a drastic, drastic way. So there's no security in childbearing. Complexity in the womb was most likely bad news. So now we're going to start to understand what Rebecca's actually saying. Lord, why are these twins kicking in me? She doesn't know they're twins, and it's far more than kicking, apparently. Okay? So we deduce what's happening. She is worried about this being bad news. So we deduce, why then am I this way? The Hebrew for the phrase here is actually incomplete, and it's important that you know this. It reads, if so, why then am I? If so, what? Right? It's frustrating. Some words were likely dropped out of traditional Hebrew texts. Later versions of the Old Testament, reflecting a different textual tradition, in particular Syriac, finish this phrase. And here's what it finishes, finishes with. If so, why do I go on living? Why do I go on living? What's her fear now? There's a lot of stuff happening here, but I keep breathing. This is not normal. Moms usually die. Why am I still alive? That's a much bigger question, isn't it? And it gives you a much more detailed picture of what's going on. So the meaning is incomplete without this line. And so we go on. So what is her experience leading her to conclude? Something is desperately wrong. And if something is wrong, why is she still alive? The typical outcome, death for mom too. In this case, Rebecca is asking something very different than most translators render. She is not merely asking, why is there a tickle in my belly, Lord? She's not asking that. A more nuanced text and God's response point to the right direction. There are two nations in your womb and they're struggling. Why doesn't God just speak literally? Why doesn't he just speak clearly? You got twins. Who knows? I don't even know what they would have understood about that anyway. She'd been like, what? Two? How's this work? Right? Think about it. It's a short time, depending on how you view the creation of the world. No matter what you view of the creation of the world, it's a short time in human history. We don't have a lot of records of a lot of things happening. What is actually happening? Why doesn't God just say, surprise, it's twins, gender reveal, both boys. Poof, here's blue, right? Like, why doesn't he do that, right? Remember, even when he does speak literally, it's not always black and white. How many times have you read something that God spoke literally in the Bible, and then it turned out he had a far deeper meaning to it? Yeah. So even if God looked you in the eye and said, it's twins, she might have been like, huh? I don't know. I don't know what she's going to respond with. But what she's asking is, how am I still alive with the turmoil that's going on inside of me? Which speaks to something big about the boys within her. What is Rebecca thinking anyway? So when the time came for Rebecca to give birth, she actually delivers two babies. Do you think this is what she understood the whole time? I just have two baby boys in here. Wouldn't make sense of the questions. This feels familiar to us, doesn't it, church? 
right? God answers, but we actually don't see clearly until after the fact. You guys ever walked that? God speaks. God speaks. He's like shouting. He wrote you a billboard on 275, and you're like, don't get it, right? And then six months later, you're like, oh, so that's what you're doing. There are things that I've prayed for that I had prayed for eons ago that I thought I was perfectly clear on. This also speaks something to Nathan's personality. I thought I was perfectly clear on. I was confident. I'm often confident. And I was dead freaking wrong. Now that doesn't happen often, but anyway. No, I'm just... (laughs) Anyway, okay. Shut up. Anyway, okay. Barney, I don't need it right now, okay? I don't need it right now. So... This happens to us a lot. God answers, but we don't see clearly until after the fact. However, we, know, we now can see why God is responding the way he did. So let's look a little bit further. Two nations. What does God mean by two nations? Yes, there's two baby boys in your womb. But he means something bigger, right? Rebecca is going to have twins, and each one of those boys is going to be the progenitor of a different nation. Right? So we're going to have people groups coming out of this. Will be separated. These two nations will be separated. The two nations are going to be rivals. That's what that interpretation would mean. A prophecy that either transpired from the moment of delivery. Why do I say that? Because Jacob is grabbing heels. Or, I would argue, it's something that transpired while the babies were still in the womb. Which is why they're struggling. I think, I I know this sounds crazy, I think the babies, I think Jacob was already trying to take over. How How many of you have a young one, like a young one that is very determined? How about a young one that is more determined than the other ones you have and tries to take over, Becca? She's looking down like, I'm not looking up, Dad. No way. It's so funny. Sam is this people pleaser. She's, she just loves to perform and loves to make people happy. Kate is hilarious because nobody knows what the heck that one is, right? She's an enigma. It's amazing. You got Joe, who is literally my mom, reincarnated. I, I mean, she didn't need to be reincarnated. She just re- reproduced my mom, right? But then you have Becca, and she's like, I know I'm the youngest, but I'm the boss, And you're going to do what I say, right? It's like Jacob coming out. Like, I'm going to do it this way. I think that this is what Jacob was from the beginning. Why do I think this? It's going to go to God's sovereignty here in a second. I think there was a purpose. But even that idea of sovereignty needs clarified. The older shall serve the younger, it goes on to say. Although this is the opposite of the norm for the male birth in patriarchal culture, it is important to God's purpose here. It's vitally important here. And this speaks to sovereignty in a, what I would argue is a helpful manner of speaking to sovereignty. God being sovereign means that he has a plan and he will work all things together towards that plan. What sovereignty does not mean is that God has a plan, he's a puppet master, and he's pulling literally every string to get where he wants to go. Otherwise, again, it doesn't make sense of fascinating scriptures that says God works all things together for good. You know what all things includes? Bad things and evil things. Did God cause evil things? No, he didn't. As a matter of fact, we have passages in the scripture when people were doing things, sacrificing their children to Moloch, 
right? They're sacrificing their children. And the Bible says this is something that God never imagined. It never entered his mind. You need to do something with your idea of God's all-knowing everything. He literally could not fathom a moment in which we would do this. And yet we did it. It never entered his mind. I, I don't like the idea that God, that people say things like, God has never been surprised, or God is never uh, taken aback by something. The Bible indicates something altogether different. He often looks at us with shock and goes, what are you thinking? What are you doing? That doesn't mean everything's a shock to him. I think he knew full well what Adam and Eve were up to. That's why I think he asked the question, so where were you? What are you doing? And they're like, crap. Okay, apples. No, it's, uh, whatever. But the point is, is that I think he knows things, and I think there are things that surprise him because they never entered his mind. Never entered his mind. God being sovereign means that he has a plan that he's working towards, not a meticulously determined set of things that he's structuring or doing. He can do that, did you know that God can step into time and say, I want this to happen and I'll make everything work to make it happen? He could do that. It does not mean that he does that all the time or that that's even his primary way of working together. And guess what? There's no contradiction in sovereignty with that. God can sit down and say, no, Nathan, I want the water bottle here and move it himself. Or he can make events happen. Or he can suggest things move to get his end. And even then, there's different ways to understand that. So, on that note, on the idea of sovereignty and on this idea of God moving and Jacob and Esau and interpreting what God says and how we're supposed to see it, I want to I talk about a New Testament passage that, in line with sovereignty, trips everyone up and at least a lot of uh, Christians that hold to a particular worldview. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to look at rightly dividing something and we read the story of Jacob and Esau in the New Testament uh, as well as the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, I believe that most people, Christians today, I believe that most people actually go back to the Old Testament because they first heard of Jacob and Esau in the New Testament. Because most new Christians take a stab at reading the Old Testament. And where do they get? They get to about Numbers or Leviticus and they go, oh, what in the world? Right? And then they quit. And then they jump back to the New Testament, right? So I think most people are reading the story of Jacob and Esau from Romans. And then they're encountering something very hard. And then what they do is they go back to Genesis 25 and they read the story of Jacob and Esau. And they go, oh my gosh. God is a weird God. He's not as weird as you think. Listen to what uh, Paul says in Romans 9, 10 through 16. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also. He just got done talking about Abraham and Sarah. So not only this, but there was Rebekah also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand. What was his choice here? A way through which the Messiah would come. Nothing in Paul's mind has anything to do with salvation. Very important matter here. Okay? God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, 
What was the message? The older will serve the younger. But didn't he say a lot more than that? Yeah, he actually did say a lot more than that. But for Paul's purposes, he wanted this shared, right? And then Paul does what Paul often does with, with his, what I will call, ad hoc method of using the Old Testament. He's just going to jump somewhere. The older will serve the younger, just as it is written. And it would make us believe that in Genesis 25, this is said. Doesn't happen in Genesis 25. Follow me for the change here. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That's harsh. What'd the kid do? He's just first. He's just a twin. Maybe he was kicking his brother in the womb. Big deal. Right? This happens. We kick each other outside of the womb, right? Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? Now also, please know what God says here, because this is so important. May it never be. What is, what is that incredulous statement about? It should never be stated that what? That God is not just. For he says to Moses, what's he say here? I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll damn anybody I want to damn. Oh, wait, I forgot. That's not what he says. He says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. What is God's choice of Jacob here? He wants to show Jacob compassion because he wants to show Jacob compassion. Because what is the normal state of affairs? The firstborn gets the compassion. It's Esau. Esau wins, right? God said, I don't want to do it that way. I want it to be Jacob. So Paul knows this. He says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Again, not quoting that from Genesis 25 either. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who loves some and hates the others. Nope, not what is said. God who has mercy. Why is Paul so focused on mercy here? Because he wants to show you what motivates God. It is mercy, not condemnation. So God answers here, right? But what the heck does it mean? The first question is what is Paul quoting and why? The oracle of the words of the Lord found in Malachi 1, 1 through 5. Do you know what Malachi is? Malachi is the last Old Testament book before the New Testament. Do you know how vastly different time frames Malachi from Genesis 25 are? It's unbelievable, okay? This is a really long span of time. Here's what Malachi says. The oracle, oracle, the oracle, <laughs> that's, that's an uncle, oracle. Anyway, okay, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Listen up, church, because Romans 9 just absolutely crushes so many people. I have loved you, says the Lord, to Israel, he says. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Was he not Jacob's brother? Yes, he was, Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but I, hated, but I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed, and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Dang, Lord. That was brutal. Why would you do that? Oh, look what happens next. Though Edom says, what the heck is that? 
Who's Edom? You know who Edom is? Edom is the people group that Esau created. There is a euphemism here. There is a, there is a, a substitution going on here. Esau means Edom, the Edomites, the people of Edom, okay? Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins, thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build up, but I'll tear them down. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. What were they? They were the wicked people who had rebelled and rejected God. That's what Esau's people became, the Edomites. And the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Your eyes will see that and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. Okay, the book of Malachi. It's fascinating. The book of Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. It's attributed to Malachi, the prophet Malachi, whose name means my messenger. And the book is a series of dialogues or disputes between God and his people happening way later. It all happened. Malachi prophesied during a period of spiritual decline in Israel after the Israelites had returned from the Babylonian exile. The people had grown complacent and began to neglect their worship and their covenant responsibilities. They were engaging in practices that were displeasing to God. Sounds like who? Sounds like the Edomites that God said he hates. Not a man named Esau randomly in Genesis 25. They were engaged in practices that were displeasing to God, such as offering blemished sacrifices, disregarding marital faithfulness, and, with, uh, and withholding tithes and offerings. This is all happening in Malachi's day, right? The book of Malachi addresses these issues and calls the people to what? Repentance. But what happens if you don't repent? You're Esau's people. You're an Edomite. And guess what God is towards the Edomites? indignant forever. What does that mean? That means God is not changing his mind if you're an unrepentant jerk. You should turn to your husband or wife and say, no, don't say that, right? Anyway, right? You are not going to receive any kind of forgiveness if you are not a person that says, Lord, I surrender, I surrender, I surrender, okay? So this is what God has told them. And so they aren't faithful in anything that they do. So Malachi delivers God's message, challenging the people and urging them to renew a commitment to the Lord. One significant theme in the book is the problem of a superficial and insincere worship. This is also true of the Edomites. The people were going through the motions of religious rituals, but they lacked true reverence. They lacked true devotion. And God, through Malachi, rebukes these people for their half-hearted double-minded way of doing things, okay, and calls them back. Another prominent theme uh, is God's love and justice. Despite the people's unfaithfulness, what does God promise to do if they repent? What does God promise to do if they don't repent? Be indignant forever. What does he promise to do if they will repent? Just like with Jacob, show mercy, show mercy, show mercy, show mercy. The book of Malachi expresses God judgment on those who persist in sin and promises a blessing for those who turn back to him. The book of Malachi concludes with a prophecy about, a prophecy about the coming Messiah who will then bring purification and judgment. Uh, this prophecy serves as a, a kind of a transition 
if you will, to the new covenant. So overall, the book of Malachi serves as this powerful call to repentance, a reminder of God's faithfulness. So what does all this mean? How do we interpret Romans 9? Not like God created Jacob and Esau in Genesis 25 and said, I just want you to know they came with stickers on them. I hate this one. I love that one. No such thing exists in God's world. No such thing. But guess what? God spoke clearly. He said, Jacob, I love. Esau, I hated. How can you get more clear than that? How hard is it to interpret God's word? It's not something you just willy-nilly do. It's not something that you just jump in and go, says it, the words say it. That's it, period. No, it's not always that simple. Just like when you're crying out to God for a need in your life. And he says something, and only after the fact do you realize how he's really going to answer. It's not as easy as you think it is, right? So what should we do? Remain humble. What should we do? We should seek. Seek to do what? Seek to find. Find who? God. What is God? Merciful and loving, abounding in forgiveness and kindness and care for those who seek him. Is that not amazing? But guess what? The words are very clear. He hates people. Mm. I don't think you're learning how to interpret well. So we've got to work through this, right? So back to Genesis 25. The firstborn is covered in red hair and his name is Esau. I don't know if it's red hair, red skin, but we've got interpreters fighting on all kinds of different ways for that. And while the second son was born, he's holding on to Esau's heel, and his name is Jacob, and Jacob means usurper, and that's the same for Jacob Dolezal. No, I'm just messing with you, Jacob. <laughs> he's like, what? I didn't do it. Anyway, as the twins grew, their distinct personalities begin to emerge. Esau becomes a skilled hunter. Jacob is more inclined towards peaceful activities, you know, whatever it is. So uh, there, you wouldn't believe how many modern interpreters go totally woke with these kinds of things. It's just really stupid, okay? So Isaac favors Esau and Rebekah favors Jacob. Parents, it's okay to favor children. No, I'm not saying it's actually okay, but it's funny that we do. It's funny that we do. There are things about our children that we go, that one just understands me. Right? That one gets me. And there's times when I go, it's because it's as stubborn as I am. Anyway, right? That's why Becca is, is mine, right? Anyway, so, but it's funny how this works, right? So they do this. Here's what I think happens in these favorite games. I think the playing of favorites actually creates more tension in relationships. But... If that was bad, if that was a no-go, you would at least think God would say something about it. And then you would see what we're going to read later in the story of Joseph in Genesis as actually Jacob's fault for loving Joseph more than all the rest. And so because that was the case, um, well, it's actually not the brother's fault for selling him into slavery. It's actually Jacob's fault for being a favorite kind of guy. I don't think that's the case. I don't think that's the case. But it is something that people do, right? 
And, and the fun thing for me as a pastor is that I've gotten to talk to a lot of you parents, and you've told me who your favorites are, and uh, I'll keep that information confidential, I promise, <laughs> until I need to use it. No, anyway, I'm just messing with you, right? So one day, Esau returns from hunting. He's famished. Jacob, who, uh, who was cooking stew, seizes the opportunity and offers Esau a bowl of stew in exchange for his birthright. The birthright was a guaranteed double inheritance. It, there, was a lot, there was a lot to that would take it, it's, a, its own sermon, quite honestly, to talk about birthright. And Esau actually saw that birthright as such a small thing to him. Or maybe he didn't take Jacob seriously. I don't know how you want to generate meaning on this one. But what I am saying is that he saw it as such a small thing that he was like, I'll take some Campbell's soup over that. Right? I would challenge you, although this isn't salvation, I would challenge you that there are many times when God does answer us, when God speaks to us, by giving us massive blessings, but I think we're willing to trade it in for something instant or something that, that makes us happy right now. And I would, I would challenge you, not only have you heard from God, not only has God blessed you, but you're running the risk of passing it up because you're just motivated by the here and the now. Just be careful with that, okay? So he despises his birthright according to the scripture, and so he trades it in for a bowl of Campbell's soup. The passage concludes by highlighting the significance of Esau's action, the selling of his birthright for future events inside of this biblical narrative. And so it's going to be a big deal. So here's, here's how we're going to conclude today. And next week, Barney's going to take our story from this point. He's going to rock into the next chapter, and it's going to be a quite a fun time. But in conclusion, the Bible contains many, many instances of God speaking directly to individuals. Those individuals are interpreting his message, but it's not always a simple task. The diverse forms, symbolism, uh, implications, human limitations, biases, all of these things make this process even that much more complicated. Yet, if we will approach the process with humility if we will approach the process of hearing God with open-mindedness, with a reliance on God to help us, even if he's going to use people or other people within his word. Don't forget, when you read the Bible, people are helping you. Those people who wrote those words, it's really important. And so you're, you're looking for divine guidance. Believers can actually then, I think all of us can actually embark on a journey that will help us understand God's word and help us align our lives with him, okay? So there is much more about this story. There's much that we're going to be covering over, gosh, several months as we, as we take a dive into the end of Genesis. But I do want you to see, when you're reading the Bible and when you're hearing God, be cautious about jumping to an interpretation. Be cautious with it. Remain humble. Remain humble. Look at opinions, listen to other people, ask for wise counsel, all of those things. You should do that. You should never just ask people and not pray. God might clarify something. He might not. I don't know what he's going to do, right? But I think you should seek this. Don't anybody tell him who my favorite is, okay? Nobody. Anyway, you should, you should, you should seek God's response, but here's what I want you to rest with. God is responding. He's responding to you. He's talking. He's talking in weird ways sometimes. Amen? Let's pray.
Lord, thank you for today, and thank you for your, your many, many gifts. I personally thank you for your word, and I, although I, Lord, do find your way of responding and your way of doing things complicated and, and confusing sometimes, I actually know that it is because I am finite. I know that it is because I'm human and that you are divine. But I do ask, Lord, that you would have mercy and compassion and help each and every one of us as we strive to understand you better, as we strive to interpret your word, as we long to find out what it is that your will is for us, how you want to see us walk out our days. We know now, Lord, very clearly that you're speaking. We know now very clearly, Lord, that you're doing We just need help in getting it. So Lord, we thank you. We praise you and we we want to honor you today for all that you do. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.